What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us as we're continuing our series, Coming Home. And I want to give a shout out to those of you who are in our San Jose campus, especially to those who may be uh, coming back after visiting with us uh, for Easter, as well as to those of you who are watching us online. And again, those of you who are reconnecting with us after perhaps connecting for the very first time uh, at Easter. If you've missed this series, which has been one of my favorite series to teach, uh, I want to encourage you to go to our website. Make sure you pick up on the other four weeks of teaching, including last uh, weekend. And I pray you had a fabulous Easter weekend. All right, let's just take a few moments to pray. God, I thank you for this time. I ask that you pour your spirit out and bless everyone watching and listening transformatively. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, today I want to talk about confronting guilt and shame. And if you've been with us over the last you know, this will be the fifth week. You are very familiar with this passage that I'm about to read. Uh, but for the sake of those who are just joining us and the focus of this message, let's go back in and look at it again. Uh, the story that is commonly known as the prodigal son, the younger son, uh, throws his money away, ends up in a hog pen, decides to get his act together and return to the father He's coming to the father, walking back down the street. And here's the text says this. His father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But as his father, uh, but his father said to the servants, quick. Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that has been fattened. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Can you say so? The party began. Amen. Praise God. Today, uh, I want to take some time and talk about what I'm calling the twin emotions of guilt and shame. I want to talk a little bit about how they can work for us and how they can work either consciously or unconsciously against us. And what is an antidote that God provides for us as it relates to our guilt and our shame. Now, let's begin where we started last weekend in the first couple of verses of this chapter. It reads as such. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Remember last week I told you they were in a house. These folk, they're not allowed to go to a synagogue. So Jesus gathers them, if you will, in a house somewhere. And in his rabbinical context, he's teaching them. They, they're gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they are grumbling. This man welcomes. This is as though Jesus is the host of the house, right? He welcomes sinners, and he even eats with them. Now, let me begin by just pointing out that everyone in that house, with the exception of Jesus, is a sinner. All got some stuff going on in their lives, including the Pharisees and the teachers, although they don't necessarily know it. The only righteous person that's in that house is, in fact, Jesus. And yet, particularly as it relates to these tax collectors and to these notorious sinners. That's another way of talking about that category uh, called sinners, uh, the, the noted sinners that are known in that village community for all the ways that they break the Jewish law and laws of morality. Uh, yet there's something about Jesus, the way 
he makes them feel, even as he teaches them, that causes them, with all of their guilt and all of their shame, to draw near to him, to come closer. It's not that he's making them feel comfortable in their wrongdoing. Of course, this is Jesus who said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, don't even think about the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty serious statement. But it is that in his presence, despite their wrongdoing, they feel this affirmation of unconditional love that is absolutely um, contagious. Contagious. If I had to have a big idea for this message today, I would just simply say that the antidote to shame and guilt operating in your life is really coming to know and experience in a really deep and personal way the love that God gives us through his son, Jesus. That would be the big ideal of this message. Now, let's just back into it a little bit. You know, Maya Angelou says this, the late Maya Angelou says this, I've learned that people will forget what you say and they will forget what you do, but they will always remember how you make them feel. And Jesus, the way he loves, is, is, creates a context where regardless to how much shame and guilt we have in our lives, we always find a safe space in his presence. He always makes us feel as we are, which is incredibly loved. Now, let's talk a little bit about guilt and shame very quickly. Here's the technical definition of guilt. It's the feeling of having done something wrong. In this particular context, the focus or the emphasis is on a specific behavior or an action. There's something that I said or something that I did that is wrong, and I, or at least I feel that is the case, and so it generates guilt. Shame, uh, the twin sibling, if you will, is the feeling of being inherently flawed or deflect, defected. In this particular case, the focus is on the individuals themselves, what's broken about them. And I like to talk about this in the sense that, that guilt and shame kind of runs along a continuum. That we start off with guilt, there's something that I did that was wrong, or I made a mistake. At some point, I begin to feel embarrassed about that thing that I did, that mistake that I made. But if it keeps rolling, I get to the extreme of the definition that I just read, which is I begin to feel embarrassed about me. And I begin to internalize that the mistake that I made is proof that I'm a mistake. And that's the continuum. And part of what I'm teaching today is that, is that, is that up and down this continuum, there's a, there, is a, there is a portion of guilt and shame that can work together in a productive way that can produce real health in our lives if managed correctly as we engage the love of God in Jesus. And then there is a portion of it that can be toxic and destructive. Listen up. I got an email the other day from uh, someone who used to be a part of my church back in Boston about 18 years ago. He was reaching out, and uh, here's what he said. I know it's been a long time since we've shared time together, but you are close to my heart. I mean that sincerely, he writes. I'm a better person, and then he puts in parenthesis, still not quite a good person, and he smiles because of you. 
I'm a better person because of you, but still not quite a good person. And what he was actually saying was, I'm a bad person. And so as I thought about, as I read that email, and I know he meant it as a wonderful compliment, I really appreciated his heart, but I concluded I must have did a really poor job. Because at the end of the day, 18 years ago when I was caring for him, pastoring him, because at the end of the day, listen guys, we're all sinners. And so there is a flaw, a brokenness in all of our lives. The flaw is level in that sense. But shame in particular uh, has a tendency of seducing us into believing that there are some things that is so wretched about me that I'm beyond the reach of redemption, that even Jesus cannot save me. I'm just that broken. You know, I think there's some people probably watching me, listening to me at, in the San Jose campus. Others are watching me online, listening on your phone or watching on YouTube. You haven't said it to anyone, perhaps. Maybe it's a teenager or a spouse. But that's kind of what you're thinking. You think that when it comes to you, you don't even have the capacity to keep growing and getting better and better and better. The gospel uh, argues against that. The love of Jesus says, oh, no, that is not true. Now, knowing the difference between uh, guilt and shame that's working in a way to move us towards health, that's productive, and that which is toxic and chronic, which is destructive, knowing the difference makes all of the difference. So let's focus our attention just for a few moments on this story that is normally called the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. I called it last weekend the parable of the father's house. The father represents God. He's got two sons. The elder son really represents the religious leaders. The youngest son represents the folk who were in that house around Jesus who had really messed up pretty badly. And he was trying to help them to understand that they could always come to him and find relief for their guilt and their shame. So he tells this remarkable story how the younger brother uh, very blatantly violates all of the laws of culture, breaks the heart of his father and, and shatters the heart of his family. He's probably hot-tempered, self-absorbed, entitled, immature, probably won't listen to anyone. He declares, he demanded, I want my share of, of your inheritance, Dad. I'm supposed to wait till you die. You won't die. I want it now. He gets the inheritance in a state of rebellion. He exits, goes to a far country, spends, wastes all of that wealth, ends up poor, broken, hungry because of a series of terrible choices that he's made. He's broken every kind of moral law that you can imagine. In, in, in the Bible describes it as riotous living, right? And he ends up in the midst of a family famine as a hired servant working for a farmer who puts him out to take care of the hogs. And he becomes so hungry that he almost is tempted to eat what the hogs are eating. And there he is with the hog pen representing for him and for us the lowest place that you can fall. Here he was, kind of an aristocrat. He falls from there to being the poorest of the poor solely because of his choices, almost to eat with the hogs, the worst place a Jewish young man can be, the lowest of the lowest. And so here's the first insight. Where does guilt and shame come from in our lives? Well, our wrong deeds obviously can be a source of guilt and shame. And Jesus is saying that this fellow's guilt and shame came from a series of poor choices and sin and terrible things that he had done. This was him. Fall into the lowest. 
And then Jesus kind of builds into this story something about the unconditional love. And it is, it is recognizing the unconditional love that, that, that is in the Father that allows the boy to come to his senses. That's the secret right there. That's the antidote right here, right? Here, here, here's that look. It says, look, the young man became so hungry that even the parts uh, that he was feeding the pigs looked so good to him. And here's the key right here. But no one gave him anything. He's a hired hand. But look at verse 16 again. No one gave him anything. They didn't care that he was starving. They didn't care about him. They didn't care for him as a hired servant. He could just die. This is what triggered verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, notice, he's a hired hand. Nobody cares about him in the distant country. Here's what he thinks. At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. And suddenly food becomes a wonderful symbolic representation of the love of the Father. And that the Father's love is so abundant that he doesn't just treat and feed his, his family well. Come on now. He feeds his hired servants well. Their plates runneth over with his love. It is the recognition that the father has this kind of boundless love that enables the boy with his guilt and his shame, come on now, to come to his senses. And in this case, he decides, uh, he says, look, I'm going to go home to my father and here's what I'm going to say. Okay, here's, here's the guilt. Father, I have sinned against heaven and you and I am, here's the shame, no longer worthy, that's the word worthy, that's the shame, no longer worthy to be considered your son. I, I have so violated my status as a son, that speaks to identity, right? Uh, uh, until my basic request is that you would just simply make me one of your hired servant. And in this case, guilt and shame works together, right? Uh, recognizing the unconditional power of the love of the Father, he gets up and he goes. And so here we find guilt and shame can be productive when they motivate us to healthy responses. Now this certainly should be obvious to us. <laughs> if, if we start feeling bad about lying or breaking the laws or hurting somebody's feelings, we stop, we think about it, and we turn, and we begin to move in the right direction, that's cool. The problem is, oftentimes, I want to talk more here in this instance about shame. Oftentimes, shame is kind of a hidden reality. And, and we don't know that we're dealing with shame until we find ourselves, watch this, rather than getting up and going to the Father owning our stuff, we find ourselves shifting blame and responsibility. Let me tell you a real quick, quick story how this happened in my life. <laughs> Many years ago, Rhonda and I got married while I was still in college. I had a wonderful, uh, blessed position down in Baton Rouge on the Board of Trustees for State College Universities. I left early, like 6, 7 o'clock that morning. I was supposed to be back like 5 o'clock that evening. I didn't get back till about 10, 10.30 that night. And when I came in, my wife, Rhonda, was just frantic. She said, my God, you didn't call. She said, I've been calling hospitals all over the, between here and Baton Rouge, looking for you, so forth and so on. My shame and guilt kicked in. 
And rather than owning that, I said to her something like shifting blame. Well, baby, you know, I had wallet, ID, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if something had happened to me, I ended up in the hospital, they would have got my ID. They would have called you. So I don't know why you were like tripping like that. <laughs> Can I just tell you that a Category 5 hurricane exploded in my house? <laughs> But if the fly lands flying, oh, I mean, it was horrible. <laughs> I'm, flipping, I'm flipping, shifting blame. Why am I shifting blame? Because I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. And what I simply should have said was just that, sweetheart. I am so embarrassed and so ashamed that I was that insensitive that I didn't even think to call you. I'm sorry. Essentially, that's what the young boy does when he goes to his father. He, he, he essentially says this, I messed up, and I'm, really in, I'm ashamed, and I'm embarrassed. You don't even have to give me back my room. Cool. Notice what the text says about the father's response. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. He does all this publicly, by the way. And his son says to his father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. Remember, he's, he, he practiced his speech, so he's going through his script right now. I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer, here's the word for shame. First, I've sinned against heaven and you. That's guilt. Okay, I'm owning that. And I'm no longer worthy as the shame of being called your son. And he's supposed to say, just make me one of your hired servants. But the father disrupts it. And the father says to the servants, quick. Bring the finest robe in your house and put it on him. Now, stop right there. He disrupts it. It is almost as the father saying, look, shame and guilt has done its part. It has caused you to get up, to come back home to the father, to own your stuff, to see the waywardness of your ways, and to begin to think differently about how you're going to live your life. That's it. Shame and guilt has done its part. Let me cut it off here. Because if I let it keep rolling, come on now, at the end of the day, it becomes toxic. So I don't, I don't need you to be in a position where you keep remembering all the ways that you mess up. Look, if he had just brought him back as a hired servant, can you imagine? The boy wakes up every day remembering that he used to be a part of the family, but his behavior kicked him out of that place every day, every day. And the father says, no, 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 no. I don't need to lock you in shame. I don't need to lock you in guilt. My love comes with grace and forgiveness. It's pretty powerful, right? I love that. Now, here's the other part. Another way of talking about shame and guilt is really in terms of using language like honor and dishonor. That oftentimes when we are feeling shame or shame or embarrassed, we feel like we have another way. Non-Western cultures use this term more than Western cultures. We have dishonored ourselves. And, and, you know, we often, uh, that dishonor doesn't just flow on us. A lot of times, you know, for better or for worse, other people feel that sense as well, that are connected to us. And part of what Jesus does for us is that when he forgives us, deals with our sin, our shame and guilt, he covers us with honor. That's part of what's happening in this text, guys. Listen, this fella has come out of a hog pen, muddy, dirty, smelly. 
may have walked for days trying to get back from the distant country home. Uh, his father sees him while he's a long distance off. So here they are out in public. I can imagine people in the neighborhood paying attention. Isn't that, isn't that that boy who left and took all that money? All those different stories we heard. Oh, my goodness. Is he back? How could he dare show his face back here? Now, you know how people talk. <laughs> but I see the father coming out. And not only did he disrupt the speech, but watch this. I would have thought he would have said, come on in the house. Let's get you cleaned up. Take a bath, comb your hair, boom, boom, boom. Then we're going to give you a robe and a ring. And a, no, 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 no. That's not what he said. He told the servant, quick, go run. Get the finest robe. I'm going to put it on him right now. Go get the finest ring. I'm going to put it on his crusty, muddy fingers right now. Go get the best sandals. I'm going to put it on him right now. Not only am I blessing him with a sense of grace, come on now, and forgiveness, I am bestowing upon him publicly my honor. This is part of the antidote for dealing with our sense of shame and guilt is realizing that not only does God give us grace and forgiveness, but he bestows upon us through his son Jesus honor. His Here's one of my favorite scriptures. It's talking about crucifixion. On, the, on that rugged cross, it says, Jesus becomes sin for us. He takes upon himself our shame so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might take upon ourselves his honor. His, his righteousness covers us, our muddiness, our stinkiness, our flawed, our brokenness. And when we begin to realize that we wear the honor of the king, that we are the prince and princes of the king of kings and the lord of lords, it ought to change how we think about ourselves. It changes how we think about life. It changes how we live. That boy walked into the father's house with honor. That's what God wants to do for you. That's what he wants to do for that fellow who wrote me that email. <laughs> Honor. And it allows us to live into what he blesses us with. Now, let me wrap this up, this second part. Let me give you this other part. So I talked to you about how shame and guilt can be productive if it moves you towards the Father for that remarkable grace and love that is awaiting you and the honor. I'll come back to that in a minute, that honor. Here's a second way, though. What happens if, if you end up in a hog pen, not because of decisions that you made, but because of just what life does to you, that life drops you into a hog pen? Check this out. Abuse, assault, trauma, childhood neglect can often lead to toxic feelings of guilt and shame. That if one is assaulted as a young person or if a divorce happens in the midst of your teenage uh, years or... Even with poverty, if you, if you, if you, you know, the trauma that comes from going to bed hungry at night, waking up not knowing where the next meal is going to come from, this stuff has a way of working in us to begin to send messages to us that tells us all kinds of horrible things. Like, for example, if you've been attacked by somebody, you think, you know, it must be my fault that I was attacked. It must be something wrong with me that I was assaulted, which is completely wrong. But that's what shame will do. Here's some of the messages that shame sends your way. When, you, when, you, when you're under the power of what I call toxic shame, 
and guilt. I'm bad, dirty, evil. I'm a mistake. I'm just a loser. Somebody listening to me right now, you use that language all the time. I'm just a loser. I'm just a loser. Uh, I'm unworthy. You heard the young man say this. I am unworthy. In his case, he had done some things wrong. But for a lot of people listening to me, it's not that you've done wrong. Wrong has been done to you. And you feel you've internalized this notion of I'm unworthy. I'm unlovable. I'm unlovable. Because you woke up in a hog pen that is not of your making. Life doomed you in a hog pen. And that hog pen is made up of guilt and shame that you have internalized. It's become toxic. What do you do? I told you at the very beginning of this message that the big ideal here is really to understand that, 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 that absorbing, internalizing the love of God in Jesus, particularly as it's displayed on the cross, I'll get to that in a few moments, is the antidote. Let me walk backwards into that. I know about this kind of shame. I know about how trauma in your childhood can, can track you down across your life. I know about this shame. Yeah, I was born the fourth of four kids in the family. My folk were divorced, and when I came along, my father looked at me and said, that's not my kid, so that was rejection. I broke out with infantile rash, went through multiple surgeries, ended up being terribly disfigured and scarred all of my school life from kindergarten all the way through graduating from high school. Terribly disfigured and scarred. I know shame. I wore those scars everywhere I went, my external scars and my internal scars. You know, I woke up with shame. I went to bed with shame. I went to school with shame. I went from class to class with shame. I, I, uh, I, I went to church with shame. I, I did my little Easter part with shame. You know, the shame of being rejected and picked on and bullied and, and seen as different and ugly. And as a result of that, I acted out. I didn't know how to escape this shame. I, I, I knew about Jesus. I raised in a Christian family. My father was a preacher. He talked about the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. I believed it. I just didn't think that that Jesus knew me. I mean, after all, I was a special education kid living in a small town. Cushada had less than 10,000 people. Come on, come on. Uh, 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 how could he know me? He couldn't know me. I mean, I'm the kid that's been picked on, bullied, left out, kicked out. Nobody wants to be with me. Surely the God of the universe doesn't know me. And then it happened one day. A little girl called me to come sit down with her, and I thought she was interested in me. Turns out she was just using me to generate the jealousy of her boyfriend, who uh, in a few minutes later touched me on the shoulder. I looked up. And I always like to say a fight broke out. He hit me. I hit the ground. It was the end of the fight. <laughs> I got up and went in the boys' bathroom. That was my hog pen. Dirty, smelling, boys' bathroom. A place of shame. I realized I was flunking out of school and how I was going to destroy my grand-aunt, my grand-uncle, talking about uh, having poured their lives into me, trying to make something of me. And so I said to the, to, to the Father, to God, to Jesus, said, look, you know, you, they say you can move mountains. I don't even know that you know me. But if you do, 
I want these three things. I want to be on the stage with honor students when I graduate. I want to go to college. I want my grand aunt, uncle to know they haven't wasted their lives. And I walked out of that boy's bathroom into a classroom, and I walked into a miracle. I ended up answering a question that I didn't even know I knew the answer to. The teacher stopped, told me, boy, you ought to stop clowning and go study. You see, that's the point, right? I felt all of this shame, and so I had built this reputation because I acted out. I clowned it. I acted a fool. I was angry. I was getting in trouble, this and that. And some of you, you're doing the same thing. You're acting out. You're clowning. You're angry. You're a problem at home. You're a problem at work. You're a problem down the street. And what's really going is on is that you've got this inescapable shame along with its little sibling guilt that's locked in your life. And you're crying for an escape. And when I turned to Jesus, I'm not telling you something I read, something I read. I'm telling you what I experienced. Three years later, miracle after miracle, I ended up being on the stage with the honor students. This poor kid who was a special education kid totally turned around at the top of the class and here was this this Jesus who I didn't even know knew me come on I showed up in my life moved me from dishonor to honor from disgrace to amazing grace praise be to God that's what he wants to do with your life my goodness and 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 it was in that moment that I realized that 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 the message of the cross was real y'all I'm going to come back to this in just a minute. By the way, since he did it for me, my point is he can do it for you. You've just got to gotta know that he knows you by name and absorb that extraordinary love that he has for you, that honor that he wants to bless you with now. So how do I confront my guilt and shame? I'll give you some real quick stuff. Number one, learn to recognize your feelings of guilt and shame. And number two, uh, confess them and examine them. A real quick story. My image for guilt and shame, for shame in particular, is that little boy, myself, I used to wear a knitting cap on my head to cover my scars. And when you walked into the classroom, you had to pull that cap off because the teacher wouldn't let you have your cap in. And I would be exposed, and I'd feel so much shame. Or sometimes the kids would take my cap and I'd be exposed and I'd feel so much shame. Whenever I'm feeling shame now, I, was, I, had a, I did a little exercise with, uh, with our staff not too long ago. And, and in the process, I was just a little bit exposed. And, and, and the next day I realized, wow, I felt like that little kid with his cap off. I, I took the day to spend some time with Jesus to kind of process through, to confess, I'm feeling embarrassed. I'm feeling shame. You, you, you got to be able to recognize it. What's your image for your shame? And then, and then own your responsibility. <laughs> that particular day as I was processing some stuff, there was some stuff I could have done differently and better. I ended up owning that. But I ultimately realized that the shame that I was feeling was irrational, not rational. I examined it and figured it out as I talked to Jesus about it. By the way, this was a remarkable thing. I had I'd gone up the street to have a cup of coffee and a little egg sandwich just sitting out on, on this, this, this porch with some folk, I mean, in a restaurant. 
And I went back in to get another half a cup of coffee. I asked the guy, you know, do I have to pay for just a half a cup? He said, yes. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to pay for half a cup of coffee. So anyway, I went back out on the porch. And I'm sitting out there really talking to Jesus about what I'm feeling. And the lady comes out. And when she comes out, she says, excuse me, I heard you ask for a cup of coffee. And you, I said, yeah. She said, here it is. And in that moment, I realized that God was reminding me, boy, I got you. Don't you understand? I love you. Don't you understand? I have crowned your head with blessings and honor. Come on now. Lean into who I've called you to be. And that's what he's saying to you. But you've got to have eyes to see. You've got to have eyes to see all the ways that God is surrounding you with his love and his grace and his honor. His honor. And then you need to leverage the good news of Jesus' love. You know, we talked about, we went through Good Friday, and we talked about the cross. Here's something that we really don't know about the cross very quickly. You know, the Romans didn't put their own citizens on the cross. It was only for foreigners, and particularly those who might be leading an insurrection against the government. And the whole point of the cross was shame. Shame, guys. That Jesus shows up on, the, on, the, on, the, on that cross you know, if you read Matthew 67, uh, Matthew uh, 28, uh, 26 there, chapter 26, it tells you they stripped him of his clothes, shaming. They spit on him, shaming. They, they beat him and turned him around and said, okay, king, tell us which one now is hitting you, beating you, shaming. They pinned him, to, nailed him to that cross and hoisted him up, totally naked, shaming. Soiling on himself, shaming. He became, he went through that shame. He became sin for us. So we might become you, your name, put your name. You might, Herman, you put your name, might become the righteousness of God. And that death on the cross was not just to pay for our sins and to remind us that he's with us in our suffering. It was the means through which he would ultimately, come on, push back against the messages of shame in our life. It is the everlasting proof that the messages of shame are just wrong. The shame tells you that you are bad, that you're dirty, that, that you're evil. But when you see Jesus dying on the cross for you, 1 John declares this, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. That's the guilt and purify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness or wickedness. That's the shame. Come on now. And when we see him dying on the cross, then we know that he has become sin, that we might become his righteousness. And so I can declare I'm good in Christ. I'm clean in Christ. I am righteous in him. It's the antidote against shame. Come on. When we think of that message that says you are a mistake, we can say, of course I'm not a mistake. Because would Jesus have poured out his life for a mistake? And when we hear that message that says that you're not worthy, of course I'm worthy. Would Jesus have poured out and wasted his life for someone who he had not declared is worthy? Of course I'm, you're not lovable. Of course I'm lovable. Would he have died a horrendous death, experienced an experience he never experienced in eternity for somebody who does not have the capacity to be loved? Of course not. 
He loved me that much. He loved you that much. I love that Paul says that we come to a conclusion, can anything, anything, shame and guilt, come on, anything separate us from Christ's love? And does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or if we are persecuted or hungry or destituted or in danger or threatened with death? There's shame attached to most of those categories, y'all. Come on. No, Paul shouts out. No, because the cross tells us, his death on the cross tells us, sealed by his resurrection, that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us, who loves you and bestows upon you the beauty of his honor. And that's the antidote against toxic shame and guilt. Believe it. Amen.